Hello there, and welcome to Pivotal Film. I am Tom Nolan. Um, can't hear you. Can't hear you, Tom. You can't hear me? Can't. No, uh, Why are you doing that? Audio's cutting out. God damn it. This fuck. What are you doing over there? What? Ah! Tom! How did I get here? Hello! Hello, Mario. We're in person. We're in the Pivotal Film studio. We've got four floors down. Lawrence Kasdan quarantined. Mm-hmm. We gave him the nasal fagels thing. He actually, <laughs> the thing came out clear. But we're thinking, you know, it's best for society if we keep Lawrence Kasdan locked away for a bit. Well, he hasn't left the he hasn't left the studio since we started this. Oh, he hasn't, he's, he hasn't been in the studio. He's been in the tower, many floors down. But he hasn't, he hasn't left the building. Let's say that he hasn't left the no, building. Nobody so, nobody leaves the pivotal film tower. Once you're in the pivotal film tower, it's in you. It's in it's you. It's like uh, you know, you get a little horn if you ever leave, and you just have to come back to the tower. I suppose that's a reference from a book you like that I've never read. Which book is that? Oh, the Dark Dark Tower. Speaking you, of books, Tom, this is a book. This is our book week, folks. This heavy, is our heavy book. This is this is two hundred pages short of our number ones from King. What are we talking about, Mario? What are we talking about? Uh, I was talking about eleven twenty two sixty three. Oh, because that that's like nine hundred pages. Well, that book does not read like this book, Mario. Okay. Today we're talking about the seven hundred and five page, not. 720 some maybe the european edition of it is 720 some pages but every review i've read of this is 720 pages and i'm now convinced nobody's actually read this book maybe they were counting like all the pages <laughs> yeah they just sat there it only has 705 numbered One, pages yeah two uh we are talking about charlie kaufman's debut novel ant kind clip what uh, clip the clip is uh <laughs> and maybe it is not physiological at all there is a preponderance of psychological issues through which I am currently going. There are the issues of employment, the romantic issues, my daughter. These things can and will take a toll. Any shrink worth his or her or Thon's salt will tell you this. Thon. Oh, wow. That's, that's a good clip to choose. I um, think, Mario, the, instead of having one of us kind of describe this plot because it's un, an undescribable plot in a lot of ways, let's just, should we read the jacket? Yeah, sure. Like, okay, I'll read the At jacket. the same time? Okay. One, right. two, two, three. B. Rosenberger, Rosenberg, neurotic and underappreciated film critic, failed academic filmmaker, paramour, shoe salesman, salesman who sleeps in a sock drawer, stumbles upon a hitherto unseen <laughs> film made by an enigmatic outsider, a film he's conceived. Ah, that we messed up. He's, con- he's conceived. <laughs> oh, no, a film he's conceived. Um, you know, just really quickly, it's a film critic. Who's going to make a film? Who's going to make a monogram about transgender issues in old cinema? The Florida Experience, I believe, is the film. I forget what it's called, but uh, I, th- I feel like it almost doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. The the thing that mattered was the fact that that movie literally exists, and that blew my fucking mind. <laughs> um, the Florida Enchantment. Sorry. Um, he goes to Florida, and while there, he's at an Airbnb, and he discovers this Ingo Cutbert guy. Cut. Birth, actually. Birth. Not cut Cuthbert, as he Cuthbert. accidentally says. <laughs> and this man has made a stop animation, stop motion film uh, that has last three months. and It took him 96 years yeah. to make it. B watches the film and is enthralled by it. During while he's watching it, Ingo dies because he's 116, 120-some years old. It's fairly vague. Yeah, and so he takes the film, and it's going to become his claim to fame because he's failed at everything in his life. Um, and 
while he's leaving, stopping to get a burger and trying to swab out the lady he's kind of fancies, uh, the thing burns and he goes into a coma and he forgets about the film and he gets a, a foreskin nose. It's pretty great. And uh, he spends the rest of the 600 or so pages trying to remember uh, through hypnosis, 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 gnosis, gnosis. Uh, and goes through a very varied sort of experiences. Mm-hmm. Where do we start? Um, this tome. Are we going to do do uh, early like a Ebert Cisco Ebert style reviews? Quick, yeah, sure, or? sure. Uh, my who would be the book critics version of this? Hold on, there's I don't think there's any such thing. Harleton and Dold. <laughs> Ro- Rooney and Doodle. Yeah, there you go. Uh, it is a, a a fantastic start to a book with some of the funniest parts I've ever read. I've actually was, was literally laughing and I really yep. do that with a book consistently. Um, it has a, an incredibly strong first 350 pages that capture you. It, 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 you know, trails into various directions, but always maintaining this sort of kind of coherent, I don't want to say narrative, but coherent sense of place. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, it then eventually does suffer from languishing in its own existence. Um, Slate kind of says it gets stuck up its own ass at times, and I kind of <laughs> agree with that. Um, where it kind of falls apart, uh, unfortunately, it kind of continues to fall apart um, to where I, I kind of feel the last 200 pages are a bit of a laborious experience. But overall, uh, you know, that, that first opening 300 or so pages are, are fantastic. Um, I actually think that the experience of, of the opening and then some of the things that kind of are peppered throughout uh, make up for the, the failings uh, of the book. Um, kind of wish I'd just been edited a little more. That's about it. Um, yeah, it's easily the funniest book I've ever read because yeah, I also read. don't read for humor uh, I just don't read a lot of books that make me laugh. I makes, I, you know, I've laughed at books. Um, I've never laughed like I laughed at the. Uh, this is actually pretty good too. Um, I do kind of like this. It's like weirdly empty. Tom is drinking Cloud Source by Two Roads. It's a hazy, juicy IPA. It has no center, which I think is weird. Um, like for an IPA to just not have like a big, huge, like a, or not even a huge, just like a hop flavor, doesn't matter. Um, and what I'm drinking is. Pretty boozy, because it's a rye whiskey. Um, Pretty good rye whiskey, though. It is... I agree with you on the last 200 pages. I wasn't sure where it went. I didn't. I don't think you knew how to end going. it. End it. I, I like the calcium stuff. I like that. Well, so but so, I mean, I, the I kept cave thinking, stuff is... Oh, oh my God. I, I just... So, I'm going to... In my early review, I'll just this he there was a big profile in the New York Times magazine a couple weeks ago, and he um, says in it that uh, uh, one of the things he was trying to do um, is that he strove as much as possible to write with an imperfect sense of where a story is going to keep its meaning uh, a secret from himself. He says, "I quote: I don't have any lessons to impart, and I want to make sure I can't." This accounts for many dreamlike elements of the novel, like, uh, uh, or this accounts for much of the dreamlike, uh, 
elements of his work, like the suburban house in Synecdoche, New York, that's perpetually on fire, even if the character lives on it for decades. These images sweep in from the fringes of his intellect, just like dreams of for Kaufman. This approach is fundamentally a matter of realism. It allows me to tell the story, not as a story that is untrue or dishonest, he said. Um, so, which, is, which is interesting, because he had um, an interview with, oh man, the Chicago Literary... I can't remember what it was. It's on YouTube. Um, if you look up Ankind, it's the Chicago... It's it's a Chicago literacy kind of festival. Oh yeah, um, I saw that. and he mentions how it, the idea of this germinated from how you know film critics always talk about the filmmakers, and he was like, "What if a filmmaker talked about a film critic?" Mm-hmm. Um, he's like, "That's where I kind of just went off from." It's like that when it's doing that, it is on fucking fire. See, here's the thing though, I found I love that stuff, and that stuff was easier to read, and I thought was great. But there's weird moments in this that I think are just kind of, like, amazing for no other... For, and I can't really kind of articulate why they're amazing. And we, we're going to have to go, like, step by step through kind of what this thing is so we can talk about some of those mm. things. But um, I just... I'm kind of weirdly in awe of it while not really understanding what the hell just happened to me. Like, I'm not sure... So I made it all the way through this, and I definitely feel oddly... Not, not like changed in a way that some of our movies would change us, but changed in the way that like you know you read it. You know what I mean? It's not like one of those books you put down and you're like, okay, now what? And it's like, and it's not because of the size either. It's like weirdly stuck in my head. Um, but there's yeah, reread King. The size is not important. The size is not really really meaningless, and the fact that I couldn't even process really the last 150 200 pages of the book. Um, is not really kind of it either. There's like weird moments that I was either laughing so hard or were just kind of so weirdly um, profound or just strange or they referenced something that you totally didn't see like coming. Um, that there's, but there's also no, there's, there's like this book is loaded with references that I guess are funnier if you know what they are, but you also probably can't ever really know what they are. And because they're linked up next to things that didn't really exist, it kind of it leads you to believe that nothing really exists. Like, even the stuff that exists doesn't really exist. None of it matters. Um, you know, like his best of lists. He has two best of lists, 2016 and 2017. They're all listed by their European names, except for the one Judd Apatow movie that makes it in this 2017 list. And he's listed so many other fake things, like you had kind of mentioned in the text, that you're, like, you're going through this list and you're just like, oh, every single one of these movies is real and I've never heard of it. Because they're not from this country and I don't know what, like, it's just, I have no idea what this movie is. But because he's already given you a bunch of reasons to doubt him, you just kind of keep doubting him. And then when he talks about real people, he talks about his own movies, like, they're of the same quality as Ingo's movie, like, they, they're just bullshit, nonsense things. And then he always falls into a manhole as he... You know, it's, it's, you don't like the man. man the, the personal aspect. Oh, of this. I, I just, love the personal. It just it it was. It well, so was this is the droll. weird. I, I think it this was funny the first couple times, but then like it keeps going back to that well, and by when he goes back to that well, he feels a necessitation to talk about that for about a page or two right. of being in the manhole, whereas like other jokes um, can quickly just kind of move on, like him. Like, his, like, fascination with Psy leading into, like, a contempt for her is just, like, a sentence and done. And, like, that's great that you keep coming back to it. But the manhole stuff is legitimately just has – it stops 
the story and its tracks. Yeah, just to talk for a page about the man. I also feel like there's a lot of there's a lot of relation to the because like, the side thing is interesting, and we'll get to who she is in a little bit. So I think it's interesting because it gets worse. Like he doesn't, he doesn't, not only does he no longer have any feelings for her, he's like disgusted by her. But I also see it along the line with this weirdo Francis Scott F. Scott Fitzgerald thing that he does through the whole thing. Everyone's always talking about F. Scott Fitzgerald and they always say Francis Scott, uh, um, Francis Scott Key. They always say Francis Scott Key first. And they're like, oh, I mean F. Scott Fitzgerald. And just like, well, why does he do that? I don't know why he does it, but he does it all the time. It, there's, it's there for no reason. I think that's, to the end of my review, and we can kind of start talking about it, I kind of feel the same way you do, but it's, it's total fucking bonkersness is really kind of mesmerizing in a weird way. And so when, even when I was really kind of muddling through the end of this book, I was like oddly under its spell. So the trunk thing... When the, the first Trunk thing we get, which I almost... Trunk te- being Donald, Donald Trump. Trump. Yeah. I almost texted you about it, even though we agreed not to talk about it. I was like, I don't know what where this came from. Because just here, all of a sudden, a girl from the future gets into his dreams and she wants him to do a novelization of... She wants to win an award for a novelization of, of his novel. Yeah, she wants a Best Adapted Brainio. Brainio. Because she can't win Best Original because of the politics involved. Right. So and she- so she needs him to create... The novel, because in his dreams he's a novelizer. Yeah. He writes novelizations, um, but he creates the novels before the script exists. Yes. So the script's the original. He's going to create the story. And so, but there's this really long modern day kind of trunk thing, except for the fact of the robot with that is just like trunk, and trunk has sex with, and Trump has sex with. Um, but even. Most of the way through that, I was like, "Holy shit!" Like, I didn't get it at first, and I still don't get it. And I didn't, I don't like. I wouldn't go so far as to say that I like it, but I do think it's kind of fucking awesome. Like, I, I don't know how it's awesome. It just is. It's like so weirdly audacious that he put this weird thing together that I just kind of, I don't know. It's just bizarre. It's a, it's, it was a, a really weird reading experience, Mario. But, I mean, that kind of started from the beginning with the weirdo flesh thing that came out of the water in 1896 or 1876 or whatever it is in St. Augustine, Florida. I think it's 96. Which is, Ingo was apparently one of the kids that was there pulling that thing out of the water. Um, And, you know, so you mentioned Ingo's movies like stop motion animation. But I guess the movie centers around, as we learn later, it centers around a comedy team named Mud and Malloy. And Malloy may or may not have anything to do with Beckett's Malloy. Um, I thought it was funny when he went to the hospital gift shop and he asked if they had Malloy and they said no. But if we we do have um, oh, what did they have? They had, they had the other stories that uh, were cut out that were from there because all the only yeah. have things that take place in a hospital. And he's like, oh, that's from the same collection as Malloy. And they're like, well, we cut, we it cut out, out Malloy because yeah, it's yeah. not in a hospital. Um, so there's that, but it also um, there's a meteorologist somehow that's watching things happen to other people. And... Yeah, the meteorologist is creating. It's it's like a forecast machine that can see into the future. Eventually, sees his own death, and then because of that, he decides that he's gonna like focus in on this girl in the future who ends up leading like the resistance of the war. Yeah, like, yeah Trunk yeah. versus the Slammies, which is this ongoing southern fast food chain um and he gives her things in little boxes as she wants them oh jeez. sorry as thon wants them 
That's a thought on Yeah. So, I mean, that's the other thing is that I think um, one of the things I find really interesting about this is B. Rosenberg or Rosenberg is kind of really carefully but eccentrically and maddeningly drawn in the sense that he's very concerned with, um, you know, uh, how society views him. He's very concerned with kind of uh, a kind of cultural equity. So he refers to his preferred... to an extent, which which I I found interesting really quickly just to like kind of frame. No, 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 go! I take over. Um, is the times that that unravels, um, and not inside of his own inner monologue. Because in an inner monologue, it always unravels. But his, his um, conversations with his daughter are all very strictly kind of like that same toxic masculinity he's arguing against, and that's like I, that's the one kind of like there's he's a really consistent character, which I enjoyed. So he's really concerned about heirs, but when it comes to like his daughter, he he lets that like guard down and gets like angry. Well, so that's the other thing I think is really interesting is that you see a lot of you can if you watch Charlie Kaufman movies, you know all of them I suppose would probably be beneficial. You can see all this stuff in all of his other movies. Like the relationship that he has with his daughter is exactly like the relationship that Philip Seymour Hoffman's character has with his daughter in Snecky New York. You know that same kind of like dismissive attitude towards the the daughter's dismissive attitude towards the father because of the because of the father not being the right kind of 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 father um and then the father kind of not realizing like what he had done and then there's the crushing emotional um ramifications of just having thought you had understood thought you had had this like inherent loving relationship but only to find out that you that you don't um, I think it's really interesting how those things add up. I think it's really interesting how this movie's this book spirals exactly in roughly the same manner that Snecky New York spirals into a kind of like dystopian war thing. Um, I don't know. I, I mean, please chime in here because, no, <laughs> because it's easy to lose yourself inside of this. See, I, I guess the main framing issue I have with it, um, like I said, is is there's a lot of grounded lunacy, a lot of grounded absurdity um, that follows this narrative consistently. Even things like Ingo having been the in the Florida enchantment because it's he's underneath the camera and it's told from his point of view. Yeah. And and leading into, you know, all the things going on in B's head, um, the, the lunacy that happens then in, you know, the hospital or sitting on Grabby's lap on the bus ride back. You know, the his relationships and his um, even like going into like the the thing eventually with the hypnotist, um, and then like his his fascination with Psy, like all of that kind of follows this kind of narrative vein of being next to like the character of B. You know, like being inherently something he would do, and it starts losing that when he takes that job at Zappos because of Psy. Like it becomes a little too upset. He becomes like. He gains this like degree of obsession uh-huh. that you know you could see has uh, the thing the weirdly the thing I kept coming back to is that Ingo's movie is is like um, in the mouth of madness like it's it's very similar to uh, oh god I wish I remember well it's, the it's character's a, name of in the he mouth mentions madness. it a bunch of times that the um, the the Ingo experience because it's not just the movie it's all the sets and all the props and all like the all the other stuff so it's he mentions the Har um, Sutter Kane from In the Mouth of oh. the author he mentions the Harvey Darger experience a lot and so Harvey Darger is the guy that lived in Chicago who was a janitor for like you know fifty years in this um, Catholic school and then when he died his neighbor 
went upstairs and he found the realms of the unreal, which is like a novel that's 15,000 pages long. And he has all these um, long rolls of paper with all these different drawings on them. There's this whole different universe. This guy lives in his own universe inside of his head for his whole life. He just like created all this stuff from nothing. Um, and then it kind of got unearthed when um, he found it. Um, he mentions the same thing with like Kafka and like Kafka wanting his right. Burn. Well, so the I mean, and you know, he's gonna he he says a couple of times like I am now Max 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 Broad. Like he's just you know it's just what he's he says. But I think the interesting thing about I don't the interesting about that stuff is that he's and there's a question about this with the Darger too is like the ownership of 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 all those things and where B really feels like he it's just his thing. Like, Ingo is really kind of out of the picture, like, at some point. And so, he like, B's, like, egomania kind of, like, comes... I think Henrietta is an interesting thing in that he... In, who works at the Zappos, which you mentioned you didn't like. And that he... Fe- it's the first person he fe- feels compelled to step all over. Where his egomania really kind of uh, is transformed into an outward aggression towards somebody else instead of just himself. Yeah, no, that's, that's the thing. is like, I don't know if it's a, it's a fact of Kaufman trying to say how much like this this obsession and like also that kind of like quest for fame like the fame like that quest is eating him up is um kind of transforming him uh in the sense that all of the absurdity around him early on is is still grounded in what b is it's, mm-hmm. it's that type of absurdity that he would see and then has like gets the zappos thing or the clown fucking porn thing or all that it starts like kind of becoming different it becomes something you know into the trunk stuff and uh kind of like apocalyptic war all of the double and all that it starts the double actually kind of brings it slightly back but all that kind of is separated from what b is inherently early Mm -hmm. on and i don't know if it's a it's a matter of of kaufman trying to transition it thematically into like this obsessions overtaking him and so now it's becoming more an idea of uh, the world around him is 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 reflecting that obsession, um, or if it's just kind of Kaufman going like, I need to throw some new insane thing in here. Let this be it. See, it's weird to it's hard to say because I think one of the things that makes this the beginning of this book a lot easier is because it mentions a lot of things that you kind of know. So even if it's, <laughs> I'm just looking at my notes. Um, even if you are having a, like a hard time following along, like with. The book. I mean, and even the, the beginning of the book is fairly odd. You know what I mean? It's it's structured normally, but you just spend so much time in his head that... Um, I mean, however, I would add, as a matter of fact, that there is a popular misunderstanding of the term pedophilia. It specifically and only refers to sexual attraction to prepubescent children. Interest in young teens is hebophilia. An interest in teens older than 15 is ephahebophilia. Look it up. Stuff like that is definitely well. Yeah, so it goes. It goes there, but there's also like this weird passage on. Uh, so he gets the stuff back, and he's really just thinking about like how to frame Ingo's work, or he he's come back after the the stuff is burned. He's really trying to frame like like how to view Ingo's work, and he starts thinking about and he talks about Kafka and he talks about Darger, um, and <laughs> he also like makes fun of Alec Baldwin <laughs> like a bunch, which is great. 
But he's like, uh, and even more unimaginable are the missing works by completely unknown artists who may or may not have even existed. Maybe someone named Lauren Thelms wrote a novel that would have influenced culture in unimaginable ways. Maybe the painting of an artist called Janice Menschel, for example, would have touched a generation of visual artists in ways unimaginable. Perhaps a symphony by, say, someone named Enright Wong would have changed music in ways we cannot even <laughs> imagine. So he does these weird kind of repetitive word games the whole time that mm. kind of weirdly push you away from kind of really grasping what the plot of the novel is. But I think if you're, for me, that stuff kind of dragged me in. Like every time he would do it, it dragged me in a little more. So there's like this, the weirdo Stranger Than Fiction thing where he like really liked Stranger Than Fiction. The adorable Zoe Deschanel. <laughs> Did you? Even though she's not in that movie. Do you think, <laughs> um, it's Maggie Gyllenhaal. I think that he put that in there because I remember when Stranger Than Fiction came out and everyone thought it sounded like a Charlie Kaufman movie. No. Like, so that was like the thing. It was like a Charlie Kaufman style movie. And he fucking dumps all over Charlie Kaufman. I'm going to read that part. Where is it? Well, also, I also love that he does a slight dumping on Stranger in Fiction by saying Zach H. Elms instead yeah. of Zach Helms. <laughs> so this is what he writes about. He writes this about himself. Or Charlie Kaufman writes this that B is thinking about Charlie Kaufman. What I would do... Uh, what I do, what I give to the world, is that I watch, I observe, I perceive, I take it inside me. In this way, I represent the universal feminine. I am not ashamed to be a feminine man. I take creative work inside me like <laughs> like semen. I allow it to impregnate my egg-like mind to gestate. And what is born is the intercoiling of these two consciousnesses. Without sperm, there is no impregnation, but without the egg, the sperm is useless, hardened into an old rock. I am receptive to true art, to true creativity, but I will not have people like Charlie Kaufman force themselves themselves into rape my mind. I will claw tooth and nail. I will name names. Hashtag me too, Charlie Kaufman. Hashtag me too. That shit is fucking crazy. Well, no, I love that because he does, he'll do that repeatedly. And also he, he does like almost, not as much. But Paul Thomas Anderson, he yeah, really the digs lesser into of, the, the lesser, lesser of the yeah. Anderson. The, the, the part Anderson's. where, like he mentions, and I, this is the thing. I think like this book is almost on when he's talking about film, like when he's yeah. talking because yeah, he yeah. just like that's his wheelhouse. Like obviously when it touches on literature and all that, he has a strong mind for literature. Um, but you know, Kaufman's mind on film is just like, mate, like just ceaseless. Like the fact that like he just knows Lord Enchantment of rare. A, <laughs> hugely unknown silent film that actually dealt with gender bending. Like I looked it up, I was like, what the fuck? This is real. Um, you know, when he talks about like this conversation, uh, that him and Richard Brody have yeah, about yeah. like, as we say, the Wanderson versus like that <laughs> hack Panderson. Um, and he talks later about there will be blood and just talks about how, you know, Oh, what did blood uh, will be there? Yeah. Um, and like the, the Daniel day Lewis just first learned acting and threw everything at the wall. Like, like, there's parts like that that are just, just so fantastically solid. But, and I think those things allow him to do stuff, like, um, talk about, <laughs> when he talks about, um, uh, what does he talk about here? It is my belief that when a student is not texting, the teacher will appear when they look up to the front of the room. I am not Sidney Poitier in To Serve With Love, nor am I Sandy Dennis in Up, up the Down Staircase. I am not the prime of Miss Jean Brody in the prime of Miss Jean Brody, nor am I Mr. Chip or any of the other, any of the seven Robin Williams films in 
which he plays inspiring teachers, parentheses, help me teach, teacher of the year two, the teacher who care, cared very much, Professor Salvador Saperstein and the sad students of Salisbury High, help me again teach, I'm your teacher and I love you, and Dead Poet Society. And also, teacher of the year is a, a Robin, actually is a Robin Williams movie as well. No, but that's the thing. So he, like, you, it's, you have this weird sense of being in an alternate reality that can almost really exist. And he does this with Judd Apatow, too. His favorite filmmaker is Godard and Judd Apatow. <laughs> and Judd Apatow. But, like, he like he talks about Judd Apatow movies. Like, real Judd Apatow movies. Like, the great This Is 40 part. <laughs> yeah. Where's the This Is 40? Oh, 254. Let me read this. This. You mean you talk about Rudman? <laughs> Rudman. Pete, we're turning 40 and we've been married. <laughs> All right, let me just set this up. He says, I've performed the Paul Rudd part in my acting for critics classes. I know it. So I attempt to play it back in my mind just to see if I can. Pete, we're turning 40 and we've been married a long time and there's no passion anymore. Debbie, and we have two kids. I hope they don't hear us fighting. Pete, no, you, no, you shut up. Debbie, I'm turning 38. Pete, but you lie about your age, so you're really turning older than that. Debbie, we're Simon and Garfunkel. Pete, look at my anus through my magnifying glass. Debbie, did you get me a pre- did you give me a present? Pete, shut up. <laughs> shut up or I'll kill you. Yeah, no, and it's, it's funny what? about this, though, is, like, there's so many parts of this that have, like, this... It, 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 it is this real ephoral quality, which I love, in the fact that, like, there's, there's a lot of mentions of things that don't exist. There's a lot of, like, misnomers. Like, he talks about David Cronenbauer and then David Cronenberg later... Um, it just kind of goes but in it, and out. It ends, up, it ends up feeling as though this, this is definitely a novel. It feels like there's multiple kind of worlds existing on top of each other. And there's even like the stuff where he mentions like the 36 people who were silent. And he's talking about Harlan Ellison's um, yeah, The yeah, Whimper yeah. of Whipped Dogs. And like that, that book specifically only talks about like 20, it's like 24 people that watch it in The Whimper of Whipped Dogs. You know? But then he has, it's funny because he has. These, but you don't know if it's like purposely false or if it's just like. This like amalgamation has has been created by this film where like all these worlds are colliding in on each but other. But it works like it works so well to create a kind of like you said before, like very early in this conversation, to create a an understandable narrative through line where we're willing to take a lot of unreality because it, he makes it, because it's a, and it's attached because it's attached to enough reality that we can just kind of sit back and let this stuff wash over us. But I think on top of that, too, there's all these weird moments where he makes these really profound, like, comments on certain things. So there's that part where, um, where is it? I mean, the one thing I remember is his, like, describing nothingness. Well, there's, so there's... I the, love that, where he just says, like, imagine this. Yeah, and, like, yeah, cut yeah, it yeah. And imagine it and imagine it and keep imagining it. Like, just reduce it, reduce it, reduce it. Like, that's nothingness. And it's like, oh, but that, he, that really works. There's this part where he's, he talks about, um... Most of us are invisible, he says. Are we? We live our lives unrecorded. When we die, it's soon as it's soon as if we've never lived. But we are not without consequence because, of course, the world does not function without us. We have jobs, we support economies, we take care of children and the elderly. This is so weird to read, like now, when that's like a like a major thing that's happening in the culture. We support economies, we take care of children and the elderly. We are, we are kind to someone. We murder. Uh, the existence of us, the unseen people must be acknowledged, but the dilemma is that once acknowledged, we are no longer truly those same unseen people. Your Darden brothers, your Desikas, your uh, Satajit Rays are honorable, talented filmmakers, decent, and I suspect caring, but the work they do is wrong-headed. Once the unseen are seen, they are no longer unseen. And like, which, is, which is a, a major plot of, of this 
book is the fact that Ingo made a stop-motion film where you see things on the camera, but all around it, he's animated things that you don't see. Which is so that it's which is which are the ends? Which is amazingly profound. Yeah, but then the book starts to kind of turn. It starts to weirdly fall apart, and like you can see in my things, there's like a clear delineation right about here. Where the book stops making... I'm guessing that's around like 460? 419. No. Where... <laughs> Captain... <laughs> I, wanna, I feel like I want to read this. Uh, I posted to my blog... Uh, blah, 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 blah. The last piece that received oh any, any comments yes, <laughs> was entitled hurts. 2010's Dumb Dreams for a Dumb World, a brutal but necessary takedown of Christopher Nolan's Inception, to which a reader called... <laughs> A reader called Smelly Nuts responded, you're a cum bucket. To which I wrote, thank you for your interest in my work. Notice how I've used your. This is an attributive adjective. It is the correct spelling. You would have been better served to write, you are a cum bucket. In which you are is a contraction of you and are. But no matter, I certainly heard your intended disapproval loud and clear. Allow me to respond to each of your (laughs) salient points. But then when he, he responds to each of them, to which the guy wrote, ha, 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 oh, I can't read that part. I won't read that part. But it just goes on and he on says, and He on. says the F yeah. word, yeah. It just goes on and on and on and on. Right, he says and the F, that's why he says the yeah. F-A word, yeah. But after that, it kind of, I mean, and this is the next thing I have circled is his 2010 best of, 2017 best of list, whereas number four is the Judd Apatow film, Hey, Timmy Gibbons, This Is Your Mother Calling. Yeah, no, that's that's the thing. It's like, it's like, through those parts, like you're you're connected to this bee who's like you you followed and he's he's a real piece of shit as a character, but like he's oddly endearing because when you're inside of his head, like you you know that he's trying to do the best of things. He's not really truly deceitful. He has a, he has a high sense of self, but he's never he doesn't have a real malfeasance to him. Like, like ever, ever really something that, that is, is truly and deeply um, malicious. Mm-hmm. He doesn't have that, that kind of character to him. So, so you're, you allow yourself to get close to this guy who's a real kind of schmuck. But I think, like, soon after that and when you get to, like, the dream invasion stuff, uh, the brainio stuff, and when you, you know, it kind of leads to there, you, 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 you remove B from it. Like, B becomes such, like, a non-figure. Even when he's remembering the Abbott and Costello parts early on during yep. hypnos- hypnosis. <laughs> um, I mean, I guess it's still hypnosis, because you're not supposed to hear it. It's a silent G. Um, like, he's still there. There's still a bit of his, like, voice. Uh-huh. And I think when it gets to Trunk, I think that's actually the big turning point, because when it gets to Trunk, Kaufman focuses so much on writing as Trump. And like cutting down the language, like cutting down the vernacular and, and just getting inside that, that it marks this real delineating point where like B disappears. Well, it's interesting. That it's inter- that's a good point because I think one of the things that I, I, I think Kaufman was probably aware of, and I didn't read this, but I just assumed that it was probably the case because I know he's on like our side of the Trump thing. A lot of comedians have talked about oh, the he's fact... Oh, he's actually pretty pro-Trump. He's MAGA. <laughs> I don't think he Could is. you imagine? Jesus. Um, yeah, that'd be funny. Um, yeah, that would fit well. <laughs> okay. um, he, uh, one of the things comedians talk about a lot is the fact that Trump is actually like really bad for comedy because it's no one can ever say anything that's more absurd than the thing that Trump said himself. So I feel like 
if you're making a, a, a if you're putting a story together about like what's happening right now and you're making like it a totally absurdist, it kind of makes sense to include some kind of like Trump reference, but it's not a political book, so he's not making like necessarily a political statement. So the Trump thing turns into being just normal Trumpian speech, which we've you could hear in your head like him delivering the things he has him say, and then turns it into this weird thing where he goes to the Hall of Presidents to see the Trump animatronic statue, and he demands that someone make him one that's just like him, and he ends up being attracted to it and yeah, see, <laughs> having and sex and like all that doesn't robot. work. All of that doesn't work for me because of that. I, I, like, I remember when I was reading it going, like, man, I really wish, like... Because it talks about, like, the trunk dies and the robot kind of takes over for him. Um, yeah. I was, I was reacting like, why not just kill off Trunk earlier and have Pence be like, like the one Pence. with, yeah, but have him be the one with the robot, like, because like there's comedy, in yeah, that. there's comedy in like the the character of in like a Mike Pence suppressed homosexuality thing that's kind of like the through line in all of Mike Pence comedy, and you would still have like B's voice because Mike Pence isn't like an insane like he's insane but he's not an idiot, um, so you could have kept B there, You'd, and you wouldn't have felt the necessity to like. Get, I guess for a second, uh, you would have felt the necessity to get like into the Trump voice, and and that was a real bummer because it does that, and I don't feel it ever gets his voice back. It doesn't get B's voice. It doesn't get an authentic voice back, and that's almost like I wonder if like the double yeah. thing pops up. I don't know how he wrote this. I don't know if he wrote this chronological. I don't know if he wrote this like has he was going through it. I know some writers kind of like kind of spatter through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, when, I don't know if that's why he put the double thing in there. Because, like, I th- it almost feels as though he has this, like, sense that, like, the bee you've been with throughout is, like, gone. Like, it's 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 not... It doesn't feel like the same character anymore. There's not these asides anymore. It's like, as he gets to the apocalypse and as he gets to talking about the ant and all that, there's a real sense of, like, the desperation of bee early on about, like, finding his place <clears throat> and finding someone who cares about him. But what's gone are the asides. What's gone are the kind of, like, the, the intrusions that happen constantly to be like throughout no matter what craziness is happening he can't help himself there's things that are gonna pop in his mind they're gone well i think that's one of the reasons that i really like the henrietta stuff and the size stuff is and even like the double stuff is because it's still in b's voice i think the problem with the trunk the trunk thing is that it's so long and it's he's in b is gone for the duration of like the trunk thing yeah there's no b present anywhere and it's just a long time, and you kind of like, it kind of like forces you to come out of the story that you were like he was telling us, which doesn't happen when he's when we spend a bunch of time with Abbott and Costello or yeah, Rooney and Doodle or Mud and, or Mud and Malloy, which is I mean the Mud and Malloy storyline turns into a fucking amazing storyline. I mean yeah. I fucking loved it. I mean. The idea that Malloy now is so elevated that he thinks he finds all this humor in the fact that they're they're twins who agree on everything and isn't that funny and you know it's mud just like can't get it together and then they find this giant Sherald um Jan- <laughs> Sherald Jenner twenty nine feet well can you can you wear lifts twenty nine twenty eight and eleven. Yeah, twenty eight feet and eleven, and he's like, "Oh, this is getting worse all the time." You were three foot and one inch lips. But I think, but all that stuff seems consistent because mm. it's from. I, I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't know if I want to say it's because it's from Ingo's movie that it seems consistent. But I think because he set up this, he set up these kind of 
parameter-ish things in the beginning. I'm not going to call them parameters fully because there's no parameters here. But because Mud and Malloy are attached to the like the earliest part of this book, it and, seems and they're like attached it's... to B's recollection of it, and it's attached to B's voice. Mm. So like all of the like, the conversations that Mud and Malloy are having are conversations that are exactly like conversations that B is going to have with, uh, you know, the Zappos HR lady who he gets like the erection talking to and he was really like impressed by it and, and all this other stuff um so that it, it makes it makes sense and it almost kind of works as like it almost would have been better because there's a kind of inherent anti-comedy like sentiment running through this where b is just really against comedy he doesn't like think it works and i he's, mean and so there's like and i think there's an anti-comedy <clears throat> sentiment a lot through the novel itself. I think a lot of the humor in it is meant to not be, is meant to, in a certain extent, be frustrating or annoying. I think some of the, I think, I have this gut feeling that a lot of the personal stuff for people that like really attach themselves to like absurdist comedy mm-hmm. would find it annoying. And I feel as though like there's, what? like, would find it frustrating because it, it stops the movement. Like, that per, every time. Besides, like, a couple times where it's just like, and I fell in the manhole, and then, like, it moves on. Yeah. But most of the time, it, it stops and needs to talk about him getting out of it. And I feel about, like that's intentional. I feel like there's a lot of non-comedy in here or anti-comedy in here to kind of, like, I don't know necessarily what's trying to drive home, but it does feel as though there's a certain intent to it. And maybe just, I, I, I know I was listening to a, a, an interview he gave where he, like, talked about, like, uh, you know, Monty Python was a big influence on him when, like, growing up. Um, and I see a lot of that stuff here because Monty Python would do that stuff too where like they'd state the joke early and then they would just run it for like five minutes of just the, of two often diminishing returns but the joke kind of sticks with you because it lasts so long well, there's so many ins and outs to we, the joke we talked about this on the podcast that a lot of times humor is funny not funny and then becomes hilarious when he carry it through. And I feel as though, I don't know if, if that's the intent, like he doesn't keep going with it long enough to make it funny again. Yeah. It just becomes intrusive. Because um, like the Monty Python things they do, they'd explain the joke, it'd stop being funny, and then you're like, oh, we're here. I get it. This is, yeah. This is, like, it's not that I get it, but it's like, really? We're still here? And then you start finding it funny. Um, well, it's weird because I, I, that's humor is what time plus whatever yeah that's an interesting point too because i think one of the things that i found in this is that i would stop being funny i think around the around the um the presence of the second b the replacement b mm. when he kills the donkey and i was like it's that actually an ellis american <laughs> psycho moment it's actually killing the neighbors do- the, killing the uh yeah that's what it reminded me of there's a lot of like other authors in this like, well um, we can well, I'm gonna, i was just gonna get there is that um I stopped finding stuff like so. I found it funny when he did it to Henrietta when he like when he was like dead. Like I'm the king of the office and Henrietta's dead. I thought that was like hilarious. But like when he kills a donkey, I was like, this is just kind of messed up. Yeah. And it's and it, it like moved me. And I, I, I not in like a like a sick way, but I was just kind of like, oh, it was like weirdly poignant and like you know it was rough and i kind of felt it inside when he like stomped this donkey and was kind of like happy to do it and then he beat that guy to death and like you know well i think that's actually it works because oh he it talks, totally he works. talks about how like he thinks it's just an animatronic he just thinks it's you know maybe right. a funeral urn and then when he stomps it and it starts bleeding and he's like oh and then he has to then he talks about it like 200 like 100 pages later yeah. where he's like i stomped it twice again because i had to put it out its misery i didn't 
want to hurt a little Well, because thing. it says, when he's doing it, it says, no, please. Yeah. But in, I think it totally worked, but it didn't work in the same way that stuff worked earlier on in the book. Yeah. It, like, has... I th- and I think it's because it's totally I, like very discordant. I saw some stuff in here, like I said, from movies that I'm very, very close to, Mo- like Charlie Kaufman movies, that, like Synecdoche. Transformers: Age of Extinction. Yeah, which uh, people don't know was you know he did a he did a rewrite on that script. No, he didn't do it. Um, maybe he did. I don't know. Um, but there's a lot of Synecdoche, New York, in the end of this book, and a lot of that stuff at the end of Synecdoche, New York, isn't funny. You know, what I mean, Philip Seymour Hoffman. This character pretending to be Diane Weist, pretending to be like the cleaning lady, like cleaning the toilet and just like doing all this other stuff, is like funny in concept, but isn't funny in reality. And instead is a kind of like really dark, moving portrait of like an end of end of time, like days scenario where this guy is experienced like the end of the world, but he's like still clean. It's, we'll, you know, we'll get to it. People that are checking fucking boxes and shit like that. Um, but it's but it's but it's weird, and that's like so to get to the other author thing, the book that we kind of when we first started this book we were kind of throwing things together, and there was a definite fuck you to Infinite Jest in this in this book, um, just in the the nature of what this book is that's based around a movie. You also notice he puts notes to footnotes in, in here and just random points, but there's no there's footnotes. no footnotes. I know. I love that. Oh, it's so great. Um, there's that. There's a there's a, a a very obvious pinch on quality too in like the amount of songs that are in here, mm. just kind of the way that it like the way that it spirals too. Pinchon had way more control over the spiral, and one of the joys of reading Pinchon is reading through the spiral and getting to the end of it, and like it all kind of coalesces. And there's a Delilah like pretension too. Sure, this book reads to me like William H. Gass's The Tunnel. Did you ever read the tunnel? I started it and I couldn't get through it. So I mean, I was I was gonna say the same thing. Like, yeah. Besides the kind of, um, oh god, what's the type of literature? The air air drum, uh, postmodernist yeah. style of literature where you well, where conventions, it's like yeah. House of Leaves style are. Well, House of, there's like a post postmodernist nightmare. stuff, which like the new these new authors, so like um, Ben Lerner and Daniel Lusky to a, like a, a different kind of extent where they've kind of taken the postmodern stuff and they've, uh, consumed it and they've just, re- they've, uh, kind of spit it back out and it looks like a bunch of different things. So mm. there's like self-referential stuff, which is like, um, the Ben Lerner, Rachel Cusk stuff. And then there's like the Daniel Lusky stuff that is super high concept, um, and is more kind of fucking with the, with what the page looks like. So, you know, Daniel Lusky, I'm assuming, is a big William H. Gass fan because he uses words to make pictures. And William H. Gass loves to use words to make pictures. Um, But just the nature of the tunnel, of how it is, you know, it starts as this one thing. You know, he's writing this book about Hitler and then he starts, he's writing the foreword to this massive work about the Nazis that he started and he's in his basement and then he just starts thinking about himself and he gets more and more and more interior and he starts like writing horrible things about his family and his wife and then he starts digging this tunnel and hiding the dirt all over the place and it's just this fucking increasingly maddening like state of existence that he's in this is i mean this is a kind of post postmodernist humorist absurdist version of the tunnel where it just gets it just it closes in on itself in a way that you almost can't get out of so that i think the cave stuff 
maybe worked a little better for me because I kept thinking about the idea that this book just collapsed on top of him. You know what I mean? The the cave is almost like a literal. And he talks about like the allegory of the cave a little bit, and there's that great. Uh, I found he, it interesting. He talks about our podcast episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's the great Ingo movie that he thinks he sees at one point. I don't even remember the context towards the end of the book where he's just like sitting there watching a, a 7,000 yeah. 7, reels of film and then eventually kind of it gets to there. He's like, oh, it's not even like the allegory of the cave. There's no shadows. It's just white until there's the dot. And it gets blah, 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 blah. Um, the tunnel is, is also like works in the same way that it's inescapable. So like it's it not doesn't mean it's like difficult to read or compelling or fun or even all that interesting. Like I don't even think the... the uh, the tunnel's like a very interesting book and towards the end of this book I think the interestingness kind of phrase re- I was going to actually retry to give it a shot because of my thing uh-huh. I'm guessing not worth it I mean you're it's but I'm not going I'm, I'm just I, I'm not going to use it for inspiration you don't hate people I mean no. the tunnel is about like hating people I mean that's it's a book about hate fair and I, I, is William H. Gass took him dead? 26 yeah he's dead um, or if somebody that is very familiar with William H. Gash can kind of disagree with me and can say it's about love or it's a, but it's about hating people it's about hating yourself it's about hating the world it's about hating he lived in 93 yeah and he was he just recently died his book Middle Sea I thought was a really interesting was an interesting book um, I thought The Tunnel was kind of at times an interesting book except for the fact that I hated every second that I was reading The Tunnel because I felt like I was being put through something that I didn't really want to be put through. In a different way than, like, a difficult filmmaker. In a different way than Come and See is going to put us through. Or in a different way than The Patriot Bird is going to put us through. Or a different way that House Jack felt put us through. Um, the tunnel kind of puts you through something totally, totally different. But this is actually a fairly close approximation of what that was like. Except for the fact that this book is a joy to read, mm. like, 70% of the time. And it doesn't... It's it's not misanthropic. No, it's totally the opposite of misanthropic. Yeah. It's, it's just it's, it's not nihilistic in any way. Like some people try to say it's nihilistic. It's definitely has existential qualities to it. Yeah. Um. But you know, it's it it definitely has this like it, it's just a book about a guy who wants to be loved. No, like, there's he a... just wants and like that's why like that's why like even though like the the calcium like him trying to reach calcium millions of years in the future mm-hmm. is the the ant the the intelligent ant is is weird it's it's oddly poignant because it brings it all back because like mm-hmm. in the very beginning like all I could talk about is his girlfriend you know like and he he keeps mentioning like my African American girlfriend you wouldn't know her but it's it's he, it's you think at first he's mentioning it because she's African American he's so woke but yeah then you get the sense that. B's mentioning that because he's just searching for something. And he, like, he thinks it's her, you know. And then he, like, lets his guard down with his daughter because he's angry at her, but he wants to get her. He just barely talks about his son because you feel like that's almost, like, two pages. Well, he mentions it, what, once? Like, like three times. Oh, is it? Like, three times. But he never, like, gets into it. No, no, no. His wife, I don't think, is ever named. Well, I kept waiting for her to, like, show up. But you just get the blog posts from the daughter. Yeah, and, uh... So, like, in the end, it's just a man who's just, like, complete, like, he's just, like, searching. Like, he's, he frames it in this kind of, like, uh, trying to be a paramour sex way, but it's never about that. No. It's just about, like, he doesn't want to be famed to be remembered. He wants to be famous just to find love and, well, ad, and not adoration, but to find companionship. He wants to be, he wants to be something. I think the problem with him is that he's, you know, he's minored in all these crazy different things at Harvard. Um, not Harvard, um, which is a hypnosis school. Yeah. Um, 
and he just he wants to be known for something and if it's for being this like super woke guy that people will kind of and not even know and i think you're right it's not known like famously it's just like that people regard him positively and because no one's ever regarded him positively his whole life. I mean, you know, a difference between this and the tunnel is that you get none of... You get very little of his backstory and, like, where, like, B comes from and why he is the way he is. Um, but he's... he's He has... Uh, he's yearning for something. Um, which I think in a kind of... And it's something emotional and something real. I think so... Like, when at the end of the book when he's, like... You know, he thinks he's changed somehow and he's like i am truly changed but i do not look at my former self in judgment and disdain i have nothing but compassion and love for uh that person for every person for every dancing spinning electron in the universe i understand now that i do not need to show ingo's film to anyone indeed i cannot show ingo's film to anyone the film was meant for me alone the only way to share the film with others is to share what i have become and you know however fleeting that is because he just you know he falls later metaphorically, but also kind of physically. And then, you know, he thinks he's ascending to this like higher version of himself until at the end of the book where he, the very end of the book where he doesn't like ascend to the higher version of himself. Um, he is striving to be a, a legitimately real good person. Mm-hmm. It's just, he's been himself for too long. And I think, and I, I related to this a lot, the idea of like defining yourself by, um, how you perceive art, I think, is a tough way to be, because no one's ever going to perceive it at the same way you do, which means they're never going to perceive it correctly, um, which is always going to put you at odds with somebody over something. This is why we have multiple fist fights after each episode. But, oh, but it's 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 the thing that like when my wife came into the place that I was working to get a job before she was my wife, and she told the manager that she read like a certain author that I think is total fucking garbage. <laughs> like, like B says about the Bible. <laughs> and this is a great line. I was like, she can't work here. Like, fuck her. She's out. No fucking way. If she reads her, there's, I will not have it. Was it Daniel Steele? No. Um, but I think it's kind of that way. You know what I mean? You just kind of get, there's like an elitist quality to be that has been there for so long that he can, and he's so, the things he's elite about are so obscure and weird, you know what I mean? That he just kind of can't, he can't let go of it until like the end of the world. Until he's can't get four million years or whatever into the future to see his friend, the ant, who he would really like to see. Sad. I felt sad for calcium. Yeah. Betty. The time rabies. The time rabies scene was so weird. I don't know why it was so vivid to me. Because by then I had really kind of checked out a little bit. But when the time where we started moving through the ant's ears, I was like, "Oh, yeah, what's happening here?" Yeah, no, it's it's a it's 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 a good piece of literature. He has he has a lot of potential. Like, there's a lot of potential for like a outstanding novel in him. It just. Do you think he'll write another one? I'd hope so. This strikes me as like a one-time only thing. You think so? It just. I don't think it had to be 705 pages long. I think he just kind of wanted it to be 705 pages long. It depends on how it sells. I mean, it's not like his last two movies have done well. And who knows how I'm thinking of any things he's going to end up doing on Netflix. Yeah. I don't know. Um, but I could see him, maybe not like immediately, but I could see him in several years coming back to it. He seems like he wants to talk about it a lot. 
Like, he, he's not just advertising. He just seems like he wants to do, like, hour-long interviews with random people just to talk about it. But I it. think he has to. This book can't be advertised. I mean, like, and you can't... So, like, my two favorite parts, and I would, I'm interested in finding out what, like, your favorite part of the book is. My two favorite parts of the book are both, like, humor-related, but they really only work, and I was telling my wife about this, they really only work when you spend a bunch of time inside the book. Mm. When you kind of get to know not just be but Mud and Malloy and, like, the trajectory of those characters and kind of what they're doing. So there's the amazing friends part. Um, oh, yeah. That part's great. Which is just fucking amazing. But then there's also the there's also this part after Mud and Malloy have kind of changed tact and they're talking about... Um, they're talking about they want to make a movie. Or Mud Malloy wants to make this movie. And I'm going to mention it because this here, the O'Leary DeBoard mountain range that you can see from space that's smack dab in the middle of a thing that B ends up having sex with later when he's a giant when he's in the unseen is an amazing thing Mm -hmm. the idea that people talk about this mountain like it's like a lady and that like it has prospects and like is seeing people is just fucking fantastic but they talk about Mud and Malloy meet the unseen man and the genius part of it is that they don't have to pay like this other person they can just act towards it and uh, and and Mud says I don't know, chick. I don't see how we get this made. And Malloy says, you know who else is invisible? And Mud says, no. And Malloy says, the, monoth- the monotheistic Abrahamic God is invisible. Maybe it's God chasing us in this movie. A million monotheistic Abrahamic gods. That's what I'm thinking. Some sort of Hebraic Lovecraft- Lovecraftian nightmare. No, that's pretty <laughs> what do they want, these gods, to torment us? Is- this is a comedy? I'm laughing already, says Malloy. It just these things just kind of come out of nowhere. I mean, I think that's. I'm gonna. Read. You know what's funny is outside for me outside of like the beginning parts that are just kind of like outwardly funny. Mm-hmm. I, I still love where B dresses down Ao Scott at the bar and then just says Audi Five Thousand when yeah. he leaves. Yeah, I don't know why he's so mean to Ao Scott, and he's like, but ah, oh, yeah, it's great. Oh, that's great. But the, so I think to our point, those things aren't necessarily like part of the book. Mm. You know what I mean? They're definitely not part of the plot. I think I'm kind of really looking forward to not reading this book for a year and then going and really going back to it and not reading it like um, for not, not reading it to try to figure it out, but just read it like for the pleasure of reading it. Because I think if you took it really slowly it would feel it would feel really different. Yeah. To kind of sure. go piece by piece by piece by piece. If you didn't try to brush through it in a week. Yeah, which I was like I was happy to do and I like it was weird. It kind of it ebbed and flowed so I would like plow through it like enjoying the shit out of myself. And then it would just dip into this kind of weird crevasse of just like weird interiority and like a lot of the meteorologist stuff kind of went over my head. Yeah. Um and so, like the best parts of those, like we talked about, was always the was always the hypnotist thinking he said meteorologist instead of meteorologist, and like that. The book is great for that, but then it's all it's still stuck in this weird kind of inert, um, like scene or this mm. inert plot thread that's got nothing to do with anything, and you're just kind of like, ah, get it, get it out, get it out. But yeah, the, the idea that El- but it's weird because it's like what you connect with, like what scene do you connect with? Is what's gonna work? Because most people. Like I said, I hated the Abbott and Costello stuff. The Abbott Costello stuff is fucking great. So much for me. But like they don't mention the meteorologist stuff because maybe they get in next to that. 
Yeah. And there's a lot of this is like, what are you getting next to? It's not necessarily fat. It's like, what are you connecting? Maybe that's why it's there. Because like, this ice is really cold. He's <laughs> throwing so many things in there to like get enough people next to it. Mm. It is funny how he hates Armand White, though. I mean, Two shots at Armand White, which is just great. Yeah, separated by like 500 pages. <laughs> it says Armand all over it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Armand White is a monster. Or when he's when he's when he falls into the manhole that one time and he's like, "Oh, why did that happen?" Because I was thinking about Manola Dargis. It's just like the the manhole manhole of Dargis. Yeah. Ah, oh, it's great. Yeah, it's it's we could I could kind of do one of those things where like we just say over and over and over again it's great for all these different reasons, but um, it's it's also really it's asking a lot of you. It's 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 something like if if I was to paraphrase like a review of it, <clears throat> if you are in any way tied to like the culture of film mm. beyond like just liking film, but liking the culture that exists around film, like redo, like how often do we talk about Armand White or Richard Brody? Not as like us wanting to be critics, but just being consumers of their in well, basically just, insanity, yeah. as it were, um, then this is something that you're going to love. Um, if you're not somebody who's at all interested in kind of like that Belillo, Pinchian humor or um, care at all about film, this is not going to be... This is something you should... You know, vehemently avoid. Or if you uh, went to the Howie Sherman Zoo Worker Institute in Upper Manhattan. Mm, uh, <laughs> oh my Israel's God. an apartheid state. <laughs> when I get to that, well, you look Jewish, and I could say you look like an oh, in, a white inbred. And that's the thing we could talk about. We, there's aspects of this book we could talk about forever. Like, it's like, interesting how many things like I, you wrote like copious notes and other like, things marked, and I don't. And it's surprising how many things I'm just remembering off the top of my head about this. Well, like, they're just kind of, like, there. I think one of the things, the interesting things... This has memorable moments. It has memorable moments, but also memorable in, moments. he also engages in a lot of repetition in this. Uh, and I think to a humorous effect, but also to a uh, uh, kind of um, unmooring effect. Like, it's hard to keep your your place in the book because you feel like you've already heard this, and you have definitely have already heard this, but it's for a different effect this time than you heard it the first time. So, yeah. you know, when he talks about... When he talks about all his, his equity stuff, when he talks about his black girlfriend, when he talks about, you know, he mentioned that Israel is apartheid state a few times in the book under different circumstances every time. Um, and so when you when it happens, you notice it, you're just like, okay, you know, that this one jumped out at me instead of like this time. Like, I think there's a bunch of Apatow stuff in the book that I didn't underline, but like there's when Apatow did his version of Citizen Kane, <laughs> like really jumped out at me. Um, but yeah, so that's it. Hentkind. Hentkind, yeah. It's something you could really dive into for several hours, but at that point you're not really going anywhere. I think part of the problem with talking about this book for several hours, unless you're Charlie Kaufman, is that, um, you're talking about disjointed things. You know what I mean? So, like, I think we could read to each other forever about, like, all the things that are funny and not really even be able to describe what they're doing in the book necessarily. There's just, like, a funny scene. Um, but if you read the book, you're like, well, that works perfectly in the context of the, of the book. So we won't talk about it for two hours. We won't. If you want to talk about it for two hours, somehow through writing, and you a, write for two hours. It won't take us two hours to read, though. No. So maybe you write for like eight hours, and then it takes us two hours to read. 
But then you'd have to know our word count, like our reading. I can read, uh, I tested it once. It was like 350 words a minute is what I usually read. Like 380. So I guess you'd have to write, oh gosh, that would be like 18. So you have to write about 32,000 words, which is a lot more than you can do on a tweet. So you have to send us about 2,000 tweets. B can read 90,000 words in a day. Um, all right. So we we did the closing thing, right? Well, I, I said I said you could tweet us. Oh at yeah. Film so or if you're Jillian Flynn, send us an email at pivotalfilmpodcast@gmail.com and explaining why we're wrong. That would be awesome. We would or, love. Or just send us a cease and desist. We, so like, we can't we can't talk about our 2009. To be novels. honest with you, if you wanted to call us and talk to us about about widows, I have many many questions that I want to ask you specifically about widows. So like that would be great. We like you, Jillian Flynn. We just don't love your books. Um, good screenwriter. Good screenwriter. Good plotter. Um, uh, so or yeah. you can visit or you can visit pivotalfilm.com and see a list of the movies that are on our Pivotal Film list and a list of the beers that we drank and how to subscribe to our podcast and uh, links to how to listen to the episodes um, and yeah so next the week after this we're going to do a uh, a kind of new film podcast or just talk about uh, Palm Springs and First Cow if you're interested in that um, I, believe we talk, I believe we'll talk for about 40 or 50 minutes on those yeah, two yeah 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 um, one longer than the other and then the week after that, we'll have our uh, much-anticipated sadness episode. So Yeah, I don't uh, know how long we're going to talk about that because we haven't recorded it yet. No. The other one may possibly have already been recorded. I mean, one of, there's a good chance that maybe one of us, during watching one of those films, is like, yeah, I'm not going to do the podcast anymore. I'm fine, thanks. Films are, films are not what I thought they were. I'm, I'm sure I'll just have a laugh. I'll just have a good laugh. <sighs> I'll have a Mai Tai. It'll be fun. Well, uh, so come watch and, a church burn and drink some mai tais. Come and see, I think is an easier take, and not that I've seen any painted bird because it's very stylized. So, like, its aesthetic is it's uh, is one of because it's an eighties aesthetic is pain. Well, but but because it's an eighties movie, it's actually rooted pretty heavily in some eighties like classic eighties aesthetics. Like the score for for instance Grand is Grand. a classic eighties. No, Flock of Seagulls. No. Um, it's like a classic 80s score. Like lots of synth and, and things like that. So it doesn't, it's not like this thing that's like, it's like, it's not pulverizing you. you. To a child kill. <laughs> it's all Def Leppard. It's just, it's pyromania. <laughs> so yeah, so uh, see uh, see one of those movies. Uh, if Drink some beers if you have to. Um, I'm assuming we will have to. Uh, and we will talk to you next week.